Chapter Two, Part Five of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part Five of Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Part Five. Now I am coming to the evidence against John W. Dorsey. I am traveling through this case now we have started it. As you have heard very little about it, gentlemen, there is nothing in the world like speaking on a fresh subject. I feel an interest in John W. Dorsey. He is my client. I believe him to be an absolutely honest man. He is willing to take the effect of all his acts. He is no sneak, no skulk. He will take it as it is. Let us see what he has done. The first witness is Mr. Boone. Mr. Boone swears that John W. Dorsey was one of the original partners. Well, that is so. It is claimed that the conspiracy was entered into before there was any bidding. Well, Boone does not uphold that view. Now, if Boone and Miner and John W. Dorsey and Peck had an arrangement with Brady whereby they were to bid and then have expedition and increase, I want to ask you why did Boone write to all the postmasters to find out about the roads and the cost of provender and the kind of weather they had in the winter in order to ascertain what bid to make? If he had had an arrangement with the second assistant postmaster general to expedite the route, he would have simply made up his mind to bid lower than anybody else, and he would not have cared a cent what kind of roads they had there, or what kind of weather they had in the winter, or how much horse provender cost, and yet he sent out thousands of circulars to find out these facts. For what? To make bids. What for? According to the government, these were routes on which they had already conspired for expedition and increase without the slightest reference to the horses and men, and, of course, if that theory is true, Boone is one of the conspirators. But I will come to that hereafter. More routes, according to Boone's testimony, were awarded than they anticipated. They got, I think, 126. They had no money to stock the routes. They got more than they expected. Well, that was not a crime. Boone left in August, 1878, and Mr. Merrick takes the ground that Boone had done the work, manipulated all the machinery, and yet could not be trusted with the secret. Boone had gathered all the information, he had done the entire business, and yet the secret up to that time had been successfully kept from him. Do you believe that? Now, Vale came, and another partnership was formed, and the second partnership remained in force, I think, till the 1st of April, 1879, or the last day of March, and then the routes were divided. Now, then John W. Dorsey is charged with conspiracy as to these routes, and these routes were afterwards assigned to S. W. Dorsey to secure advances and endorsements that were made. Now, of the routes mentioned in the indictment, 
John W. Dorsey was interested in seven at the time of the division. From Vermilion to Sioux Falls, from White River to Rawlins, from Garland to Parrot City, from Ure to Los Pinos, from Silverton to Parrot City, from Mineral Park to Pioche, and from Tres Alamos to Clifton. How much money did he get on all these routes? I have already shown you. He received two warrants for $87, and they recouped them both. He received another warrant for $392 and succeeded in keeping it. That is all the money he got in these seven routes. Now the testimony of Mr. Vail shows, if it shows anything, that after April 1879 he took those routes and kept them and never paid a dollar to any official in the world, and he also swears that no matter how much he got, it made no difference as to the routes that had been given to John W. Dorsey and Peck. It could not in any way affect their amount, and that no person in the world except themselves had any interest in them. Now it is charged that false affidavits were made by John W. Dorsey, and that the making of these false affidavits was the result of conspiracy. Let us see. It has been shown by the evidence and I have already shown it, and conclusively shown it, that the affidavit was substantially correct, so far as the proportion was concerned. Now, let me explain what I mean by proportion. For instance, I am getting $5,000 a year on a route, and it takes five men and ten horses. That is an aggregate of fifteen. Now, Suppose I simply expedite it a certain number of miles an hour and say it will take 15 men and 30 horses. That makes an aggregate of 45, does it not? Then the government gives me three times as much for the expedited service as for the then service. Now, suppose I am getting $1,000 and it only takes one man and one horse and I make an affidavit that it takes one hundred men and one hundred horses, and if it is expedited, it will take two hundred men and two hundred horses, how much more do I get? I get just double, and the result of the affidavit is exactly the same as though I said the one man and one horse that it then took, and it would require two men and two horses. If you keep the proportion, you cannot by any possibility commit a fraud against the government. Now, we understand that. Now, let us see. When you make an affidavit, what do you do? When you make an affidavit of how many horses it will take, you take into consideration the length of the term, three or four years. You take into consideration the life of a horse. You take into consideration the roads and the weather. You take into consideration every risk, and find it is only a matter of judgment, only a matter of opinion, and the fact that men differ as to their judgment upon those points accounts for the fact that they make different affidavits. If everybody made the same calculation as to food, as to weather, as to roads, as to disease, everybody would make substantially the same bid but on the same route they differ thousands of dollars a year because they differ in judgment as to the number of horses it will require and as to the number of men. 
And then there is another thing. Some men will make a horse do twice as much as others. Some men are hard and fierce and merciless. Some men are like they ask you to be in this case, icicles. Some men resemble the god so far that they will make a horse do five times the work they should, and other men are merciful to the dumb beast. So they differ in judgment. One man says he can go twenty-five miles every day, and another man says he can only go fifteen. One man says stations ought to be built twenty-five miles apart. Another says they should be built ten miles apart. They differ, and for that reason, gentlemen, the bids differ, and for that reason the affidavits differ. I shall not speak of all these affidavits, but I shall speak of the ones that have been attacked. Mr. Merrick called Mr. Dorsey a perjurer because he made two affidavits on Route 38145. Now, no such charge is made in the indictment, but I will answer it. Now, then, as to the two indictments, the court, two affidavits, Mr. Ingersoll, two affidavits. Well, there ought to have been two indictments to cover both cases. Now, this is on Route 38145, Garland to Parrot City. Now, there were two affidavits made on 38145, as is set forth in the evidence, but it is not in the indictment. The first affidavit was sworn to March 11, 1879, in Vermont, and filed April 16, 1879. Neither could come in under this conspiracy anyway. The second was made in Washington, April 26, 1879, and filed the same day, which is a suspicious circumstance. The letter dated April 23, 1879, according to the prosecution, purports to transmit an affidavit made on the 26th. There is no evidence that the affidavit dated the 26th was enclosed in the letter dated the 23rd. The affidavit set forth the number of men and animals required to run the route on a schedule of fifty hours, three trips a week. There is no evidence as to the character of the paper transmitted, if any was transmitted. Nor, in fact, is there any evidence that any paper was transmitted with that letter. Now, on page 804 of the record, Mr. Bliss submitted two papers to Mr. McSweeney, a witness, saying, I show you two papers pinned together. Who pinned them? I do not know. One dated April 26, 1879, and the other dated April 24, 1879. The paper dated April 26 is endorsed in the handwriting of William H. Turner. The endorsement on the paper dated April 24 is in the handwriting of Byron C. Coon. This fact shows that the papers were read by Mr. Bliss as one paper and Mark 17E, were treated by the department as two separate papers received on separate dates, and so marked and so filed, and that they were marked at the time they were identified as numbers 17 and 18. Now, the only question is whether the last affidavit was made for the purpose of committing a fraud upon the government, 
and whether the change in the figures in the last affidavit were intended to or could in any way defraud the government of the United States. Now let us see what it is. Mr. Merrick charges that the second oath was willful perjury. In order to show that this was an honest transaction, and that Mr. Dorsey should be praised instead of blamed, I will call your attention now to the exact state of facts. Now, if I do not make out from this that it was a praiseworthy action instead of perjury, a good, honest action, I will abandon the case. In the first affidavit, Dorsey swore that it would require three men and seven animals, as the schedule then was, and that for the proposed schedule it would take eleven men and twenty-six animals. Now, three men and seven animals make ten and eleven men and twenty-six animals make thirty-seven, so that by the first affidavit he swore that it would take three and seven-tenths more animals to carry the mail on the expedited schedule than on the schedule as it then was, did he not? Three men and seven animals, as against eleven men and twenty-six animals, it would take three and seven-tenths more animals, consequently you would get for that three and seven-tenths more pay. Now, let us understand that. That is an increase in the ratio of ten to thirty-seven, and if his pay had been calculated on that first affidavit, it would have been thirteen thousand four hundred and thirty-three dollars and four cents. But it was not calculated on that. He made another affidavit. Now, the second affidavit said that it would take twenty men and animals instead of ten, as it then was, and for the expedition fifty-four men and animals. Now, the ratio between twenty and fifty-four was two and seven-tenths, instead of three and seven-tenths, so that under the second affidavit, which they say was willful and corrupt perjury, he would only get eight thousand four hundred and fifty-seven dollars and the change of that affidavit, if the amount had been calculated on the first instead of the second, would have cost him for the three years yet remaining of his term $14,925.60, and that change saved, exactly as if they had made the calculation on the other affidavit, about $15,000, and yet they tell me that that was willful and corrupt perjury. There has nothing been shown in the case more perfectly honorable. Nothing shown calculated to put John W. Dorsey in a fairer, in a grander light, than this very affidavit that is charged to have been willful perjury. Do you see? He made the first affidavit, and in it he made a mistake against the government of $14,925, and then, like an honest man, he corrected it and for that honest correction he is held up as a perjured scoundrel. It will not do, my friends. But, as a matter of fact, not one of these affidavits is set out in the indictment. Not one charged in the indictment. They are wandering tramps that were picked up as they went along with the case, and have no business here. In Route 38152 he made no affidavit. In Route 38113, 
there is no charge in the indictment that he made any affidavit. In the Route 38156, the affidavit was not false. It was charged and was not successfully impeached. In Route 40104, the affidavit was never disputed, and it was never attacked. In Route 40113, the affidavit was not attacked not a solitary witness was examined. In Route 35105, no affidavit was made by Dorsey. In Route 38134, there are two more affidavits. Now, let us see. Here is some more fraud. Put it down. 38134, two affidavits, a great fraud. The first affidavit said three men and twelve animals that made fifteen, that for the expedition it would take seven men and thirty-eight animals, that made forty-five. In other words, the proportion was fifteen to forty-five, just three times as much. Three times fifteen makes forty-five. Then he made a second affidavit, filed it with a purpose to defraud the government. Let us see. In the second affidavit, he said that it took two men and six animals. That makes eight. That on the expedition it would take six men and eighteen animals. That makes twenty-four. The proportion was eight to twenty-four. Three times eight makes twenty-four. And three times fifteen make forty-five. So that the amount was raised exactly the same to a cent under the second affidavit that it was under the first and consequently could not have been made for the purpose of defrauding anybody. Impossible. The proportion, of course, is the material thing in every affidavit, and it is only by that proportion that you can tell whether they are trying to defraud this government or not. Suppose that second affidavit had changed the proportion so that he was not to get just the amount of money, then you might say it was a fraud. But it did not change the proportion. On Route 38156, another affidavit is filed and not successfully impeached. I went over that. I have got through with that. That is all there is to it. That is all. That is everything. 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 There is no evidence tending to show that John W. Dorsey ever spoke to Thomas J. Brady. There is no evidence to show that he ever saw him. There is no evidence to show that he was ever seen in his company. No evidence to show that he ever saw Turner, that he ever heard of Turner, that he ever spoke to Turner, that he ever received a letter from Turner, that he ever wrote anything to him. No evidence, as a matter of fact, that he ever exchanged a word with these men. No evidence that he ever saw Harvey M. Vale, that he ever spoke to him. Certainly there is no evidence that he ever conspired with him. No evidence that he ever made an agreement with Thomas J. Brady, or with Mr. Turner, or with any officer. No agreement of any sort, kind, character, or description at any place, upon any subject, or for any purpose, not the slightest. No evidence that he conspired with anybody. No evidence that he ever received from the United States a solitary dollar, 
with the exception of $392. Not the slightest. There is no evidence that he ever wrote a false communication to the department. Nothing of it. There is no evidence that he ever wrote a petition. No evidence that he ever forged one. No evidence that he ever signed anybody's name to one. No evidence that he did anything of the kind, or that he ever changed one. No evidence that he ever put a man's name to it that did not live on the route. No evidence that he ever put in a fictitious name. No evidence that he helped to deceive the postmaster general. Not the slightest. If there is, I want somebody just to put their finger upon the evidence. There is no evidence that he ever made false statements at any time. There is no evidence that he ever paid, as I say, a dollar to any official, and no evidence that he ever promised to pay it. All the evidence is that he got $392. He made the affidavits in accordance with what he believed to be the truth. The evidence shows that when he made the affidavits on those routes, he had no personal interest, that he received not a dollar for making them. He made them because he supposed the contractor or subcontractor had to make them. He made them because he believed them to be true. He was guided by the little experience he had in himself and by the statements made to him by others and in all this evidence there is not a word, not a line, not a letter tending to show he did a dishonest act, and the jury will bear me out that in the affidavits attacked he was substantially right, while in the first instance he was too high, in others he was too low. But there is no evidence that he deliberately swore to what he believed to be untrue. The proportion sworn to by him has always been substantially correct. In other words, gentlemen, the testimony shows that John W. Dorsey is an honest man, and there is no jury, there never was, there never will be, that will find a man like that guilty upon evidence like this. It never happened. It never will happen. Now I come to my other client, Stephen W. Dorsey, and I feel an interest in him. He is my friend. I like him. He is a good man. He has good sense. He is not simply a politician. He is a statesman, and I want you to understand that he never did an act in this case that he did not thoroughly understand as well as any lawyer in this prosecution ever will understand or as well as any lawyer of the defense ever will understand. He knew exactly his liabilities. He knew exactly his responsibility. He knew exactly what he did and knew he did only what was right. In the opening of this case, Mr. McSweeney made a statement. He told you the exact connection of Dorsey with this matter. He not only told you that, but he told you that Dorsey had lost money on these routes, and that he had never been repaid the money he had advanced, and in that connection he said that he had turned the routes over to James W. Bosler, and the department knew of James W. Bosler because they introduced testimony here that the warrants were paid to James W. Bosler. Mr. McSweeney stated that Bosler controlled the business, and now we are asked by the prosecution 
why did you not bring jane w bosler on the stand and show that you had lost money i return the compliment and say to them why did you not bring jane w bosler on the stand and show it was not true that he had lost money as he kept the books i ask them that why did they not bring jane w bosler mr merrick if your honor please there is no evidence whatever as to whether s w dorsey lost money on those routes and the statement of counsel made in the opening i respectfully submit cannot be used as evidence by the counsel in the case the court of course it is impossible for me to say after so long a time spent in receiving evidence what evidence has been given on a disputed question i cannot say from recollection what evidence has been given on the subject but i understand the remarks now made are not made upon evidence in the case but in reply to remarks made in the opening of the case mr ingersoll partially so mr merrick the opening by their counsel the court by their counsel mr merrick by their counsel mr mcsweeney mr ingersoll let me just state it and the court will understand it perfectly mr mcsweeney in his opening said that these routes had been turned over to james w bosler that he received the money and paid it out and that s w dorsey on these very routes had not made money but lost money very well but that statement was simply a statement it was never proved afterwards the government said to us why did you not bring james w bosler to prove that the court where did they say that mr ingersoll they said it in their speeches mr merrick said it mr merrick not to prove as to the money mr ingersoll i why did you not bring james w bosler mr merrick yes but not as to proof of money but as to other questions in reference to the distribution of routes and the loaning of money by dorsey and by bosler to dorsey and dorsley's transfer of the routes to bosler as security for the loan as appeared in bale's testimony the court i shall not interfere mr merrick i shall not attempt to arrest the course of counsel unless there is ground for it and i ask the court that there being no evidence of this fact that the counsel shall not mr ingersoll interposing i am going to show there is some evidence the court i understand it is a remark in reply to an observation of your own mr ingersoll that is principally it now they introduced the warrants that had been drawn by the contractors and subcontractors from the post office department they proved that these warrants had been paid to james w bosler and that one after the other hundreds had been assigned to james w bosler now then i say they say to us why do you not bring in james w bosler and prove your innocence i say why did you not bring in james w bosler and prove our guilt 
we opened the door. We told you the name of the witness. We told you that he had taken the routes, that he kept the books, that he dispersed the money, and that we had lost money. Instead of robbing the government, the government has robbed us. And they say, Why did you not bring Bosler? And I say to them, Why did you not bring him? They know him, and they know he is a reputable man. Now, there is another point. I ask you all to remember what was said in the opening, and I understand that a defense is bound by its opening, bound by what it says to the jury. The question is, has any fact been substantiated in this case that contradicts a statement made in the opening? The Court The defense has no right to avail itself of Mr. Ingersoll interposing of what it says the court of what it says in its opening unless it is followed by evidence mr ingersoll certainly not but it has a right to show that no evidence has been introduced by the government that touches that opening statement it has the right to do that surely now then mr boone was the witness for the government a smart man he swore who were interested in the bidding. He told and he positively swore that Dorsey was not interested in these routes. He gave the names of the persons interested, and he swore positively that he was not. Dorsey, then, I say, had not the slightest interest. He loaned money, he went security, he assisted in getting sureties on bonds, and you recollect the trouble that they have made about some bonds. Has there any evidence been introduced to show that there was a bad bond? Has any evidence been introduced to show that the name of an insolvent man was put upon any bond as security? Has there been any evidence to show that any action was ever commenced on any of these bonds? Any evidence tending to show that every bond was not absolutely good? As a matter of fact, the government waived all of that. In offering the contract on Route 35015, Mr. Merrick made this remark. It is offered for the purpose of showing the contract made. The contract itself is not an overt act. That is all right. There is nothing criminal about that. Good. Nothing criminal about any contract, gentlemen. You will all admit they had to make the bids, and if they were the lowest bidders it was the duty of the government to accept the bids and afterwards to make the contracts in accordance with them there was nothing wrong in that that is dorsey's first step his first step really was an act of kindness what was the second step he was unable to advance any more money mr peck mr minor mr dorsey and mr boone were unable to advance the money so Mr. Boone went out, and Mr. Vale came in, and the new partnership agreed to refund this money that had been advanced, that is, the money advanced by the other parties. What one gets another to advance is really advanced by him, as long as he is liable for it. Mr. Vale, a man of large experience and means, was taken in Boone's place. Is there anything suspicious up to this time? 
That is the only test of this whole question. Is it natural? If it is natural, there is no chance for suspicion. After Mr. Vale came in, a written contract was made on August 16, 1878. There is no conspiracy up to that time, not the slightest evidence of it, no arrangement with any officers up to that time. Now, under the August contract, Mr. Vale took the entire business in charge, and he ran it, as I understand, until the first day of April, 1879. No officer had any interest in it then. There was no conspiracy then. Vale received all the money and paid it out. Here we stand on the first day of April, 1879. Now, what is the history up to this time? That John W. Dorsey, Peck, Miner, and Boone were bidders. That certain routes had been awarded. They had not the money to stock the routes and that S. W. Dorsey advanced some money and went security, that afterwards Boone went out and Vail came in, and the contract was made by virtue of which Vail became the treasurer and knew everybody and ran the business to the first day of April, 1879. He swears positively that he made no arrangement and that he paid no money. It is also in evidence that in December 1878, Stephen W. Dorsey and Vale met for the first time, and met in the German-American bank for the purpose of settling the claim upon which Dorsey was security, and replacing the notes upon which Dorsey was by notes of Vale, Miner, and Company. Afterwards these notes were paid by Vale and the security of Dorsey released. Now, in April 1879, a division is made. The contract of August 1878 was done away with and a division of the routes was made, 70% being taken by Vale and Minor, and 30% by John W. Dorsey and Peck. In April 1879, the parties divided instead of coming together. They do not conspire, they separate. They do not unite, they go asunder. From that moment they agree to have nothing in common. Each man takes his own, and each man attends to his own and does not help anybody else except when they insist that a contractor or subcontractor shall make the affidavit. They made affidavits on the routes on which they were contractors. That is all there is to it up to that time. Then these routes were assigned to Dorsey for the purpose of securing him. Now, I go to the overt acts charged against Stephen W. Dorsey. Do you know I am delighted to get right to that page of my notes? I am delighted that I now have the opportunity to answer, and to answer forever all the infamous things that have been charged against this man. Here we are, before this jury, a jury of his fellow citizens, a jury that has the courage to do it right. I have finally the chance of telling here, before men who know whether I am speaking the truth or not, what has been charged against Stephen W. Dorsey, and what has been proved against him. Let us examine the overt acts charged. On Route 38135 it is charged that Minor, Rudell, and S. W. Dorsey transmitted a false affidavit. 
The evidence is that the affidavit was made by Minor, not by Dorsey, transmitted by Minor, not by Dorsey, and that it was not transmitted as charged in the indictment, but transmitted on the 18th day of April, 1879. There is no evidence that Dorsey even heard of that affidavit, that he ever made it, that he ever transmitted it, that he ever saw it, that he never knew of its existence. That is the first charge. There is not one particle of evidence to show that he ever knew there was such a paper. Upon that written lie, upon that mistake, these infamous charges affecting the character of this man have been circulated over the United States. What is the next? That he, with others, filed false petitions. I am telling you now all the charges, every one of them. What is the evidence? Oh, it is splendid to get to the facts. The evidence is that every petition is shown to have been genuine. There is no evidence that he ever filed one or sent one or asked to have one sent on that route, and every petition is genuine and no charge made except as to one. In one they said the words, quicker time, were inserted, but the very next paragraph asked for quicker time, and nobody pretended that had been inserted. Besides that, it was charged in the indictments to have been filed on the 26th day of June. As a matter of fact, it was filed on the 8th day of May. It was never filed by Stephen W. Dorsey. It was never gotten up by Stephen W. Dorsey. There is no evidence that he ever knew of it or heard of it. Third, that he fraudulently filed a subcontract. Two mistakes and an impossible offense. That ends that route. That is everything on earth in it. I defy any man to make anything more out of it than I have. I have told every word. The next route is number 41119. It is charged that Stephen W. Dorsey, with others, transmitted a false oath. The evidence is that the oath was made by Peck, and it was transmitted by Peck and not by Stephen W. Dorsey. What else? That it is true. There are three mistakes in that charge. They say Dorsey made it. Peck made it. They say Dorsey transmitted it. Peck transmitted it. They say it was false. The evidence shows it true. That is all there is to that route. It is the only charge on that route. No petitions were claimed to be false. Now we come to Route 38145. Let us see if we can do any better on that. The first charge is that Stephen W. Dorsey fraudulently filed a subcontract. The subcontract was made with Sanderson. Sanderson got his own contract filed. This charge was copied from the old indictment. It is a mistake, and that is all there is to it. These are the charges that have carried sorrow to many hearts. These are the charges that have darkened homes. These are the charges that have filled nights with grief and horror, every one of them a lie. The next route is 38156. 
The first charge is that he transmitted a false oath. The oath was made by John W. Dorsey, and is true. The second charge is of fraudulently filing a subcontract, an impossible offense. That is everything on that route. Absolutely untrue. Now we come to the next, number 46217. The charge is filing base petitions. The evidence is that every petition was genuine. Every one. Mr. Bliss said, We make no point about increase of trips on this route. Every petition was for increase of trips. You will see that on record, page 1008. That is the only charge on that route, gentlemen. Utterly false. End of Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part 5 of 7 Read by Roger Moline